Please take your Bibles and turn to the 14th Psalm, Psalm 14. Have you ever noticed that the term senseless often shows up in the descriptions of murder and violence? Uh, For example, you might hear someone say, that was a senseless act of violence. So why senseless, particularly? I mean, after all, didn't the killing make some sense to the one who did it? I mean, whether he was acting out of personal anger or racial hatred or religious zeal or whatever it was, as irrational as the act might look to everyone else, it made sense to him. Well, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. says, we use the word senseless when we express shock and indignation about something that is wrong, something that just doesn't belong in this world, no matter what the one who thinks, uh, who did it thinks, however they justify their actions. It's a senseless act Because, quote, it saws against the grain of the universe. Because, as Christians might say, it doesn't fit God's design for shalom. Shalom, which is the universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight for which God created this world. As we come to Psalm 14 this morning, King David is lamenting senseless acts done by senseless people. Look at verse 4. Psalm 14, verse 4. King David says, Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. King David's people are suffering here. And they're suffering because of evildoers who are consuming them as they might consume a meal. Now we don't know what these senseless acts are, but look at verse 7. That concludes this psalm. David is longing and praying that the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people so that they can rejoice again. Whatever senseless acts these senseless people have been perpetrating against King David's people have sucked the life out of them. And David is praying that the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people so that they can be glad again. Well, it seems to me that Psalm 14 uh, was written from King David's vexed heart. He's asking something like this. What is wrong with these fools? And by the way, when he uses the word fool, it's senseless fools. It's it's not a trite word, not just like a silly fool or 
somebody who just does dumb things. But David has chosen here for this psalm the most serious word in the Hebrew language for fool. It's the word nabal. And it means senseless, disgraceful, wicked. One who has a boorish refusal to listen to reason or to submit to God. So let me ask you, why do senseless people do senseless things? As we study Psalm 14 this morning, my prayer is that we will get a sense of God's view of sin so that we will do the same thing that David does in Psalm 14, namely that we will lament the foolishness of sin, and hope in the Lord for salvation. Let's read Psalm 14 together. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the name of the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Psalm 14 is a rather famous psalm. I've heard it all my life. I have quoted it many times. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. How many times have you maybe quoted or heard that? But I never knew why it was written. Why did King David write Psalm 14? Why is he talking about the senseless person who says in their heart that there is no God? Why is it that Psalm 14 is then referenced in Romans chapter 3 that Josh read for us this morning as a dissertation on the universal depravity of man? Why? Why was it written in the first place? It was written because King David is lamenting the foolishness of sin and hoping in the Lord for salvation. So when we come to Psalm 14 this morning, that's my goal for us, is that we will lament, grieve over the foolishness of sin, and then hope in the Lord for salvation. First of all, in the first six verses, 
King David laments the foolishness of sin that's causing his people to suffer. There's two perspectives on sin here. Did you notice? Basically, the same thing is mentioned twice. Verse 1 seems to be maybe a uh, universal truth, or maybe it's just King David's perspective and God gave him these beautiful words. But then verse 2 and 3 is the Lord's perspective. Do you see that? So this universal truth about the foolishness of sin and then the Lord's perspective, but they both say the same thing. Friends, we need to hear the Lord's perspective on sin. We need to hear it because we don't get a proper perspective of sin anywhere else. We're not going to get it from our culture. We're not even going to get the right view of sin from our own hearts. R.C. Sproul says, The necessity of speaking of the sinfulness of sin has been thrust upon us by a culture and even a church that has diminished the significance of sin itself. Isn't that true? Sin is communicated in our day in terms of making mistakes or of making poor choices. But not in the same way that Psalm 14 communicates it. Evil and foolishness. Mr. Sproul continues... Sin is cosmic treason. And what I mean by that is that every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. It's not until we understand who God is that we gain any real understanding of the seriousness of our sin. It's not until we take God seriously that we will ever take sin seriously. We need this perspective this morning. If we'll ever lament over sin, we need to hear not only universal wisdom about it, but we need to hear God's view of sin. And we have that in verses 1 through 3 this morning. Look at it again. We've got to take this seriously because look at the devastating effects of sin in verse 1 through 3. There's like a fourfold repeating pattern. Verse 1, sin begins where? In the heart. Then it corrupts our character and results in actions that are evil, that hurt others. And by the way, it affects all of us. Do you see that there in verse 1? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. That's their character. They do. That's their actions, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. It's universal. And now the Lord's perspective, verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. That's their heart. Together they have become what? Corrupt. And there is none who does good. That's their actions. Not even one. All of us. All of us. Friends, we need to learn to lament the foolishness of sin this morning because 
It just doesn't belong in this world. Sin always causes misery in life, doesn't it? Have you experienced this? Psalm 14, King David is is asking, what's wrong in his kingdom? What are wrong with these people? The answer, sin. We, in a similar way, might ask, what's wrong with this country? What's wrong with my marriage? What's wrong in my home? What's wrong in my individual relationships with other people at work or in my neighborhood? What's what's wrong in those situations? And the answer is often sin. What problems has sin caused in your life? What problems has your sin caused in your life and others? Well, Psalm 14 teaches us five things that we've just got to know about sin if we're ever going to lament. Five things we've got to know about sin if we're ever going to lament like David did here. First of all, verse 1, sin rejects God. You see that? Look at Psalm 14, 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then from the Lord's perspective, look at verse 3a, saying basically the same, same thing. They have all turned aside. They've all what? Rejected. They've all dismissed. They've all turned their back to go their own way. So, One of the commentators that I read, Van Gemmeren, says, The fool is neither ignorant nor an atheist. The Nabal fool, the the word, the senseless one that David talks about here, aggressively and intentionally flouts independence from God and his law. In their hearts, fools deny the practical importance of God's existence. They disregard God's expectations. They deny any personal accountability to God for their actions. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And he may not be a a straightforward atheist. He's probably more like a practical atheist. A practical atheist that wishes there was no God. A a practical atheist that lives as if there's no God. Isn't that where sin comes from when we live as if there is no God? Henry says, the fool cannot satisfy himself that there is no God, but he wishes there were none. And pleases himself with the fancy that it is possible that there may be none. He can't be sure that there is. And therefore, he's willing to think that there's not. Here's the sad reality. Friends, when we turn our backs on God, 
We turn our backs on the only true source of love and joy and peace and life. We, we walk out on the one relationship that will outlast every other relationship when we turn our backs on God. As Cornelius Plantinga says, we gather all that we have and make our way toward a far country, toward the outer darkness, toward a place of self-deprivation, a place of our own making. When we see sin as rejecting God, we'll begin to grieve like David does. We'll begin to lament the sin in our hearts and in our world. Number two, second thing that we've just got to know about sin, if we're ever going to lament, is that sin corrupts us. So it rejects God. That's not all. Sin corrupts us. You see there in verse 1, fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. What's God's view? Look at verse 3. Together they have become corrupt. The word corrupt means rotten. (laughs) It is rotten to the core. Sin is like a cancer that begins in the heart and spreads to every facet of our character and life. No matter what images the Bible uses to describe sin, it says over and over and over again, sin is missing the target. It's choosing the wrong target. Sin is wandering from the path. Sin is neglecting. What's actually good for us? What foolishness! John Calvin says, The effect of the habit of sinning is that men grow hardened in their sins and discern nothing as if they were enveloped in thick darkness. Sin will take over. Sin not only rejects God, it corrupts us. The foolishness that began in our hearts spreads like cancer to our mind and our will and our emotions. And then sin comes out and it hurts others. Sin rejects God, sin corrupts us, and sin hurts others. Now you might think, how simplistic. Friends, if we could remember this, How much we would grieve our own words and our actions. How much we would promote health and wholeness and holiness in our relationships. If we would remember that sin always hurts others. Isn't that at the heart of Psalm 14? David is saying, these evildoers are consuming my people. They're eating them for lunch. What is wrong with these fools? Why do senseless people do senseless things? Number one, because they're rejecting God. Number two, because sin has corrupted them. And number three, because sin hurts others. 
Why? Why does sin hurt others? Why, why do we end up going down this? Well, I thought it was interesting this week, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. But Paul explains that at the heart of sin is living for self. It's always self-focused. You think about any occasion of sin in your own life, and you're going to find self in the middle of that thing. And isn't that the picture that we get here in verse 4? They're consuming the poor for their own benefit. So sin hurts others. Look at verse 1. They do abominable deeds. <laughs> Man, our society doesn't talk about sin and use the word abominable, does it? Look at God's view in verse 3, saying the same thing. There is none who does good. In other words, they all do wrong or evil. Not just they all make mistakes. They all do wrong and evil. Second Corinthians 5, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. What's the definition of sin there? That we live for ourselves and Christ died to free us from our idolatry. Sin rejects God, corrupts us, and hurts others. That's the action. And then the fourth thing that we just need to learn, we've got to know about sin from Psalm 14 this morning is that sin is universal. It's universal. That's number four. Sin is universal. Did you notice how every time David was talking about them, he, and then from God's view, it was also us. Did you notice? We can't get away from this, can we? Look in verse 1. There is none who does good. Oh, okay, well, that just must be them, the evildoers, the fools. None of them do good. Okay, well, what about from God's view? Verse 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on who? Just the evildoers. No, no, no. The children of man, that's all of us, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And what's God's opinion? Verse 3, they have, next word, all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And then, as if we don't need this emphasis, not even one. There's none that does good. Not even one. Wow. Sin affects everyone. Everyone. Not even one righteous person on earth. And Paul used Rome, uh, Psalm 14 when he was teaching the church at Rome that sin has affected the whole of the human race. Jews are not different than Gentiles. Jews are not righteous and Gentiles are not sinners. Jews and Gentiles, all of Adam's sons and daughters are sinners. That's what the Bible teaches us from cover to cover. That means I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I remember when we had our first baby, 
Little Zach was born, and it was the duty of pastors to visit you in the hospital. Well, this pastor was eager. He actually came during labor into the room, uh, which was not a good thing. And uh, I have learned from that, so ladies don't ever, uh, you know, you can thank him for that faux pas there. So afterwards, though, there was my pastor holding this beautiful little boy, and he said, just remember, he's a sinner. It's true, though, isn't it? Here's why. Romans chapter 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. David said in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. We're sinners from birth. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that say about all mankind? We're all children of wrath. We're all sinners separated from God. Romans chapter 3, we read it this morning. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin rejects God. That's not just them. From the day I was born, you came screaming out of the womb, bent toward rejecting God. Sin corrupts us, not just the people in Washington or Hollywood. Sin corrupts me and you. Sin hurts others. My words, my actions, your words and decisions hurt other people. And sin is universal. It's all of us, friends. No matter how rich or poor, male or female, black or white. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean that every human being is as wicked as possible. The doctrine of total depravity means that sin affects every man and affects every aspect of our humanity, every aspect of our minds, wills, and bodies. And I I just have to tell you, from my own experience, most people do not believe this. Have you had conversations with with your uh, friends or neighbors, maybe family members and I find that most people do not really believe that we are all sinners. Some of my friends believe that people are basically good. Children are born innocent. 
They, they think that God has no issue with good people, only the bad ones. And then, probably very patient, and he's really only upset with the really bad ones. But Psalm 14 teaches us something that our hearts and our society won't ever tell us. We're not good people. We're sinners. In fact, it gets pretty graphic. We're rotten to the core in our rejection of God. And so we've got to get that lie of society out of the way so that we can be saved. And that leads me to the fifth thing that we need to know about sin from Psalm 15. Verse 4 through 6. Sin brings judgment. Read verse 4 through 6 again. This is David speaking about the people who are doing evil to others in his kingdom. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are, in great terror, for God is with the congregation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. David is grieved and vexed about the senseless acts of evil. And the people who are perpetrating these evil things have no idea what they've gotten themselves into. They think they're in control. But did you see verse 5 and 6? Look at it again. It's the paradox of sin. Sin is like a boomerang. It's always going to come back. Right now, verse 4 and 5, you're, you're busy pursuing your own self-interest, so busy that you're consuming and terrorizing the poor, but you will be in great terror in the end because God is on their side, the side of the righteous. Look at verse 6. Right now, you would shame the plans of the poor. Shaming the plans of the poor means frustrating their plans or opposing the poor. But in the end, look at what he says in verse 6. The Lord will oppose you because the Lord is their refuge. He is their confidence to continue to live for God even if they're opposed by man. You think you've dismissed and denied God. <laughs> uh, but the paradox of sin is this. Your sin has set God against you. Sin always brings judgment. Again, Cornelius Plantinga. God is our final good, our maker and savior, the one in whom alone our restless hearts come to rest. To rebel against God is to saw off the branch that supports us. Rebellion against God cuts us off from our only means of support. It's a self-destructive project. Sin is self-abuse. Sin is suicide. 
That's what we need to know about sin from Psalm 14. And this song is given to the people of God so that we will lament, so that we will grieve sin. Now, I don't know what you thought you were going to do when you came to church today, but I have spent 32 minutes encouraging all of us to grieve over sin, and it's likely that not many things encouraged you to do that this week. Psalm 14 does. Paul Tripp's so helpful. Imagine how much easier marriage would be if there were no such thing as sin. Imagine living in this long, lifelong union of no sinful conflict, no unfaithfulness. Imagine love uncorrupted by sin for decade after decade. Think what it would be like to guide your children to maturity with no sin in the way. (laughs) Imagine being patient and kind toward your children all the time. Imagine your children always having a heart to obey, desiring to do what is right and, and living free from the temptation to go their own way. Sin destroyed that. Imagine your job unaffected by sin. Imagine every boss being motivated to, by love for each worker and a commitment to their welfare. <laughs> imagine, imagine the workplace free of selfish competition, backstabbing, jealousy, and deceit. Imagine a work environment where people were more important than money. Love was more highly valued than success. Decisions were made with pure motives. Imagine it. And grieve because we don't have it. Imagine there being no such thing as a corrupt government. What would your own like Uh, Life be like, Tripp says. If your relationships were not stained and twisted by sin, if you did everything out of a pure heart of love and worship of God, if you were free of anger, if you were not driven by selfish motives, imagine life without sin. But Paul Tripp ends that little paragraph by saying this, I'm afraid that we're so used to a sin-stained world that we lose sight of the fact that it has messed everything up in our lives. I'm afraid that what should deeply disturb us doesn't disturb us at all. I'm afraid that what was never meant to be has become what we now expect. Wow. 
Well, friends, I, I want to encourage all of us to grieve the sin in us and around us. Because sin always causes mis- misery. And as dark as that is, that's not the end of Psalm 14. And it's not the end of our story. Aren't you glad? In verse 7, after lamenting the foolishness of sin for six verses, David closes Psalm 14 by hoping in the Lord for salvation. Read verse 7. Let's read verse 7 out loud together. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Sin comes from within us, corrupts us, and results in hurting others, but salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation restores shalom, and salvation results in joy. And the fulfillment of the salvation of Psalm 14 that David hopes and prays for is the greater King David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes out of Zion, the very presence of God. God sent his king who did what none of the rest of us could do, and that is live a righteous life so that as one of the Taking on human flesh, the Son of God became the Son of Man and yet lived a holy life and then laid down his righteous life for sinners like me and you. And he did it to save us from our sin and from ourselves. And he did it not just to save us and say, okay, now wait until heaven. He did it to restore everything that sin has broken and corrupted in our lives. So our character, our words, our marriages, our homes can be restored. Do you see that? When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, his people have been robbed and vandalized. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, God restores the fortunes of his people, not in money. No, think much bigger, much better, much richer than that. We're talking about real love and real joy. The kind of stuff money can't even touch. And if you'll notice here in Psalm 14, that just as sin began in the heart and worked it out through the life, so the Bible teaches us that salvation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, also changes our heart, and that salvation is worked out through the life. So here, the foolishness of sin is what? Rejecting God in the heart. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's foolishness. So what's wisdom? Wisdom begins by fearing God. 
the complete opposite of rejecting him. That sense of awe that says, God is God and I'm not. That sense of awe is that God made life and I want to live life quorum Deo. According to his law, because his law is perfect and holy and good. Completely the opposite of the fool. The gospel changes our hearts so that we believe what Zach read earlier that God exists, then that he rewards those who seek him. And how do we seek him? Jesus said, come to me, all you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And so we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sin, to reconcile us to God, to restore everything that sin has broken. King David laments the foolishness of sin, and he hopes in the salvation that comes only from the Lord, friends. So that means as we sit here today and feel the weight of our sin, that means that whatever it is that you feel like your sin has broken, that can be restored through the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. As we follow him by faith, as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus will restore us, our marriages, our family, etc. So, all right. I'd like for us to, to take just a few moments at the end of this time together now that I have um, labored on those two points. I'd like for us to actually respond to those two things. And this is unusual, so that's why I'm prefacing it like this. I'd actually like for us to have two times of prayer. I would like for us to all quietly, privately, no, no one praying out loud, just there in your seat, I would like for you to take just a moment to respond to the Lord by grieving over sin. Could we do that? Could we just get along with God right there in the midst of this, this group and lament the sin in your own heart? Lament the sin in your family, in your marriage. Lament the sin in, in uh, your workplace. Lament the sin in our country, in our world. But I encourage you, friend, start with your own heart. And, and I'm only going to give you about a minute or so to do that. Just, just lament the sin in your own heart for a, for a moment or two. And then, then we're going to hope in the Lord for salvation as a second prayer. Let's... Let's do, take the time to do that now.